Hello, everyone, and welcome to Art City, a weekly podcast about art, architecture, and urban design. This is Mary Louise Schumacher. So you may have noticed I said podcast. Last week, we actually premiered Art City on WMSE, a local FM station here in Milwaukee. It has a great new lineup of talk shows at the noon hour. As it turns out, MSOE decided our show is not a fit for them, and we were booted. I guess this means I can stop practicing the introduction to the show in my car, which I have been doing in recent weeks. Anyway, I just want to say to MSOE, no hard feelings. I also want to thank Ryan Schleicher, who wanted to do smart radio about art, which is kind of a rare thing and really wonderful. I also want to encourage everyone to tune in to shows like The Disclaimer on Wednesdays and The Tiny Film Invasion on Thursdays. These shows are really contributing a lot to dialogue in Milwaukee. Truth be told, this whole exercise has been really good for my own thinking. We've been talking about creating dialogue at Art City for years and years now, and now we're getting off the dime about actual dialogue, so it's all good. This half-hour podcast will both celebrate and question the ways in which Milwaukee aspires to be an art city. We'll talk about the things that we love, and we'll talk about the terrible ideas we wish to God would go away. Some of you may know Art City is the name of my column and my blog, but it's also a community of really smart people who contribute to that coverage, and you can expect to hear from some of them here. Today, I talk with Tyler Green of Modern Art Notes and one of the most respected critics in America today. We will be talking about Detroit, which, as many of you know, is in the midst of the largest municipal bankruptcy in U.S. history. Some creditors have been eyeing the billions of dollars worth of art at the Detroit Institute of Arts as a quick fix in what could be an orgy of asset grabs. Tyler organized what he called a day for Detroit, encouraging critics across the country to participate. This story may seem a little far from home, but in a real way, it's about the value of the permanent collections in art museums like our own. Later in the show, one of Milwaukee's most thoughtful artists, Santiago Cucuju, reflects on the work of another artist here and a night he had at a San Francisco taqueria years ago and a drunken guy and what he was ranting that night. Finally, Adam Carr meets up with a street artist beneath a bridge to take a look at the mark this artist has left all over our city. Now, here's my interview with Tyler. So let's just jump right in and talk about this idea of a day for Detroit. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about how this idea came to you and what it was that you asked art critics and art journalists to do? Well, for some months, it had been evident that the art collections at the Detroit Institute of Art were somewhat at risk due to Detroit's bankruptcy. The art at the DIA is not owned by the museum. It's mostly owned by the city of Detroit. So Mm. when when the current financial situation reached ahead in Detroit, the art uh, kind of came in, 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 into risk. Um, there's certainly a chance that Detroit's creditors, mostly fat cat Wall Street bondholders, could try to force um, a sale of one of America's great art collections. Um, and for a number of months, it seemed that this was kind of an unlikely thing. And then about a week or two ago, um, kind of a variety of events happened that kind of made the whole thing more likely, um, including some people in the art world who you would expect to be very pro-art um, came out and argued in favor of selling the art, notably um, 
Peter Sheldahl, the art mm-hmm. critic of The New Yorker, who, who later uh, recanted. Right. <laughs> and my friend Terry Teachout, who writes for The Wall Street Journal, wrote that it really needs to be people in Detroit and Michigan who, who take the lead, yeah. which is absolutely correct. Um, I'm not in Detroit or Michigan. I live in Washington. And yeah. so I was just kind of hunting for a way to let people who are kind of disempowered in a bankruptcy proceeding, even in a democracy, people are disempowered in a bankruptcy proceeding such mm-hmm. as this, kind of give people something to do that gave them voice and express their interest, enthusiasm, and support for Detroit, its art, and its future. You know, and one of the things that I personally responded to when I got your email request um, earlier in the week was that there was such a focus on the collection. You know, it wasn't just a bunch of -of out-of-town critics pontificating, which, you know, many of us, I've never actually been to Detroit. So I really liked that approach. I know that you posted 10 artworks during the day in question. Um, I confess I was up for hours the night before just digging through (laughs) the collection online, um, which really forced me to look at this museum more deeply than I had before. If you can tell me a little bit about how you framed this and why you framed it in the way that you did. Well, at, at their heart, um, art museums are, are their collections. Um, things like exhibitions tend to get a lot of the attention, but museums do exhibitions, at least the good ones, mm-hmm. to spotlight their collections and to help us learn more about the art in their collections, about our shared cultural history, about the cultural history of a region, about a region's involvement in the broader cultural world. So, um, and it is it is not the institution that is at risk here, even if by some horrible, horrible circumstance, the DIA's art is sold off by, by a bankruptcy court in conjunction with an auction house. The institution, albeit in greatly less form, will still exist, but it's the collections that are at risk here. And I think that it's easy to be for the museum and to be against the sale of, of art. But I think that in this circumstance particularly, it's important to focus on what would and could be lost, and that is the collections. And um, that's especially important in a a city like Detroit, where I think for many uh, people in in Detroit and in Michigan, you know, the DIA and its collections are a particularly uh, rare and unique way of interacting with with the broader world. I mean, art museums are the places where we as a culture... um, share our history, whether it's our history in, in 20th century Michigan or the history of, you know, 7th century Middle East objects or something. Right. Yeah. I mean, what I what I ended up writing the, the following morning after staying up all night and looking at this collection <laughs> is that it really made me think a lot about, you know, I, of course, I'm writing from another post-industrial city that's struggling and... I couldn't help but think about the Milwaukee Art Museum and what these artworks mean to us. And while, you know, as you point out, there are great exhibitions that go through a town, it's those artworks that we can go to over and over again that we build a a lasting relationship with and that ultimately, you know, really do nurture and inspire the artists in a community, the people, the very people who might go into, you know, an empty and vacant um, decaying place in a city like Detroit or Milwaukee and create renewal and do interesting things and create a new story for that city. So I, I have countless stories after 13 years of covering art here of 
artists who were really kind of turned into artists by their experiences at our local museum. I mean, and there isn't a lot beyond these core institutions that do that in a city like it, Detroit or Milwaukee. Especially for children for whom yeah. their their primary, if not their most significant encounter with the world beyond their experience and their circumstance is with the objects that are 500 years old and from, you know, Flanders or France or Russia right. or China. You know, each year, 50,000 Detroit school children visit the DIA, and, yeah. it's, and, and they have an experience, an encounter with a bigger world that, 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 you know, you don't get by watching TV, that you don't get in a playground, that you don't get, you know, in other mm-hmm. ways. It is, it is an, a, a unique physical um, experience that, that certainly taught me when I was a child that there was stuff out there I didn't know uh, and that I might want to know about. It should be noted that on the day of Detroit, which was a Wednesday, there was just a deluge of blog posts and tweets and people talking about the collection, people weighing in with ideas. Tell me a little bit about what the response was um, and what you personally found kind of more meaningful among them. Yeah. the um, According to, to the DIA, which... I guess went through and figured it out. Um, about 8.5 million people saw the tweets, the, oh, the wow. day, the hashtag Day Detroit tweets alone, and I think about three dozen blogs and websites and art critics um, at papers and magazines and, and online web magazines and such around the country um, posted about it. So the total audience was was more, and, and it was great to see um, a lot of traditional media from from newspapers like like. Uh, the Detroit Free Press and the Detroit News to TV shows like like the Rachel Maddow show on mm-hmm. MSNBC all pick up on it. And I, I think what was um, really, really gratifying about it was it was very specifically about what is and was at risk, um, and that is the art. It, is, it, was, it was people sharing uh, with their people. Um, be it an online audience or, or you know, through, through a website or, or their, their Twitter people, um, you know, what mattered to them. And so it wasn't, it, it was people making other people aware of the threat mm-hmm. um, and, and, and saying indirectly and often directly, don't do this. Um, yeah. And it was, um, you know, it's hard in general for people to express affection for or to declare value for. Um, an institution. Yeah. And there were, I mean, I read, you know, one tweet from a man who had proposed to his wife um, within the museum and in front of the Diego Rivera murals and really felt that, you know, his children should be able to enjoy that museum. And there were so many uh, people who had, you know, really become very attached to the works in that collection. Were there any that stood out for you, just responses from people that you saw that day? I would say the totality of the thing hit me more than any one response. I did notice that, the, the, the one about the wedding proposal, and it did remind me in, in, a, in an extremely useful way that um, art museums are also kind of among the most prominent places in their community where people can gather. And at a place mm-hmm. like the DIA, which is, is free to the people of Detroit and to the people in, in, in the counties that, that, mm-hmm. that border the city or that are around the city, um, you know, it is a free place of congregation. Um, mm-hmm. It is a place of congregation where you can obviously look at art, but also that you can um, have and share meaningful life moments that can be shared with both the 
previous and ensuing generations. Mm-hmm. Have important civic dialogue of various sorts, too. I mean, you're right. They're gathering yeah. places today. Yeah, sure. and we don't have that many of those, and especially Detroit doesn't have um, as many of those um, as, as, as might be ideal. Um, and, and if you believe there is a future for, for the city of Detroit, then it seems to me that you want to do everything to make sure that those places around which Detroit can continue to rebuild will continue to exist. And if you've been to Detroit lately, if, if listeners have been to Detroit lately, um, the area around the DIA is one of the few um, areas of, of vibrancy and renewal in the city of Detroit. Um, it is, um, it, it, it's, it's, it's an area that is there with a hospital and Wayne State University, uh, MOCAD, the Museum of Contemporary Art Detroit, College of Creative Studies is all in a little, I don't know, 10 or 20 block area there. And Tyler, you also encouraged people to sign up for a membership, which I know you did. I know I did. I read that many other people did. I got emails from readers here in Milwaukee who signed up for a membership. That was a really great idea. Tell me about that idea. You know, it kind of gets back to that that notion that what is happening in Detroit is a, a massive mechanism of disempowerment. The, the way the bankruptcy proceeding is, is moving forward, the way an emergency manager was appointed to the city uh, for the city, has created a situation by which it's kind of hard for, for Joe Citizen to know what to do because you know, Joe Citizen has kind of been forcibly put on the sidelines. And so other than encouraging people to, to share favorite works of art, the only, only thing I could really think of was to encourage people to join the museum. Um, it's a meaningful thing for the museum. It's 65 bucks, But given the enormity of the challenge the museum is facing at the moment, it also doesn't seem like, you know, I'm probably not going to miss that $65 very much. I suspect a lot of my readers and, and your readers won't. Um, so it just seemed like, a, like something we could do. A tangible sign of support, really. Yeah. I know that at least a few critics did voice some concern about participating in A Day for Detroit. I know that Jen Graves, for instance, the art critic at The Stranger in Seattle, um, while really wanting to support Detroit and its museum, was concerned that the effort might play into the hands of um, conservatives who might target the art you know, as a frill in the process of bankruptcy. Um, and she also talked about just highlighting the collection as a way to entice creditors to salivate even more over these very, you know, valuable works of art. Um, what do you think about those concerns? Did you hear any others? What would be your response to that? I don't think posting an image of a Jan Van Eyck on Twitter is going to um, make it more monetarily valuable or mm-hmm. monetarily attractive than one of the great Jan Van Eyck paintings in the world would otherwise be. So I think that was a little far-fetched. Yeah. You know, one thing I wanted to talk to you about, too, Tyler, is just the way that the art world is responding to things um, these days. Uh, A little bit, you know, there are these moments where the art world kind of congeals and responds in unison or semi-unison to certain circumstances. Um, You know, I think about, for instance... Um, a few years ago when Ai Weiwei was imprisoned in China, um, that the art world, and that was, of course, a very unique and unprecedented situation. Ai Weiwei was jailed as part of a roundup of 
um, lots of artists and poets and writers um, who were expressing disdain um, towards the government there. But in any case, when such a prominent artist was jailed, you know, you saw in that case a lot of the museum world, museum directors kind of gathering together, behaving as one, taking moral agency to respond. They put out a petition. Um, the Tate in London put a huge banner on the outside of its building. Um, the San Diego Museum of Art staged a performance. Um, uh, more recently, when Jory Finkel was uh, let go from the Los Angeles Times, you saw almost every museum director in Southern California sign a petition asking for her reinstatement. It seems like there are these moments where um, you know, critics, uh, museum professionals who maybe not so long ago were functioning more independently are using some of these new media tools to speak together. You know, the digital sphere enables lots of things that used to happen, you know, in envelopes with stamps on them, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and allows things like protests to be more, more public and, and, and allows people to rally mm-hmm. uh, their address books more to things. I, you know, one of the things about this kind of thing that interests me is the art world um, and creative worlds in general bask in, in ambiguity. You know, mm-hmm. uh, art, art people love to sit around and talk about, you know, the multiple meanings of, of an artwork. Oh, does it mean this? Oh, does it mean that? Well, you know, it could mean both, and all thoughts are valid. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the rare instances, you know, three or four a year maybe, mm-hmm. um, where something comes along uh, that touches on the art world and is unambiguous, the imprisonment of of, of an individual exercising his his internationally recognized right to speech mm-hmm. um, or, or what's happening in Detroit. Um, I think people really value, relish, enjoy the opportunity to come together as one in a way that we don't come together even around, you know, Picasso. Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, you can argue about what's good or great in a Picasso, but when it comes to, um, you know, the example you stated with Ai Weiwei mm-hmm. or, or, or with what's happening in Detroit, um, I think there's a lack of ambiguity that people, you know, that that, that, that very lack of ambiguity empowers people. Now we turn to Santiago, who was reminded of something a drunken man said over and over again in a San Francisco taqueria years ago after looking at a local art exhibit recently. One of the things I appreciate about Santiago is what a great observer he is of his own reactions to art. Here, listen. Hi, my name is Santiago Cucuju, and I wanted to share a few thoughts that I had after having seen the current tendencies show at the Haggerty Museum at Marquette University's campus. A very interesting element of this year's incarnation is that the artists were given access to the Haggerty's amazing permanent collection and given free reign to use some of these works for their own ends. Some artists, like John Horvath and Tiana Bowie, have chosen to seamlessly incorporate some of these works from the permanent collection into their own installations while others, like Will Carpenter and the collaborative duo of Cassandra Smith and Jessica Stieber, use works from the collection as more of a clerical marker. I found myself truly captivated by an installation from Evan Kreutz's, which reconfigures three distinct elements from the permanent collection into a particularly engaging site-specific work. Much of Kreutz's work engages the act of looking, artifice, and elements of geometry into many of his own paintings and works on paper and as a specific point of reference, can be seen in the installation Existential Semplex. 
He has built a large shelving unit with a built-in lighting system worthy of something that one might see on the photo shoot for a new Chanel perfume. Onto this, he has placed a death mask of the author James Joyce. A fluorescent light fixture is embedded into the back of the piece of furniture and it illuminates two works which hang above the death mask. A screen print of crashing waves by the artist Robert Longo and an elegant geometric abstraction by the aesthetic theorist Joseph Albers. As I entered the exhibition, I realized that my interest in art keeps shifting. And for that particular moment, I harbored a deep desire for something introspective, calm, elegant, and simplicity, and maybe even celebrating a particular distance to the audience. Certainly, this work touched on some of those desires, but it also gave me an explanation for something I had heard years ago after a night of drinking while at a mission taqueria. A gentleman, much more inebriated than myself or my friends, was waiting and ranting while in line ordering his tacos, and the phrase that stood out was, look at the look. He kept repeating it like a mantra, look at the look, look at the look. At the time, I had no idea what this guy meant. But looking at Evan Gritzis's existential simplex across the span of several years, the phrase became crystal clear. It is in the act of looking and the desire to perceive and understand the world around us that this process of interpretation starts to reveal a complex element of being. If there is truth or meaning in this world, look at the look is a battle call for us to turn inward, not only recognizing what we see with our eyes, but also what we may sense on a deeper level in the face of a cultural propensity for surface and display. Next up, Adam talks to Jeremy Novi. Last spring, as the snow thawed and the concrete became bare again, Milwaukeeans began to notice new residents swimming around on our sidewalks, clusters of beautiful koi fish. The artist responsible for these golden swimmers and other stencils around Milwaukee is Jeremy Novi, a graduate of UWM. While he's based primarily in San Francisco these days, Novi drifts around the world, across the country, and spreads his street art in various urban places. For this edition of Art City Asks, Adam caught up with Novi beneath the marsupial bridge. He just texted me and said, it's rainy, but dry under the bridge. I'll see you when you get here. So, tell me about a failed piece you once made and what you learned from it. The time I got arrested by the cops. <laughs> so, um, I'm doing this eight-layer stencil in the Castro, which is like the gay neighborhood of San Francisco, um, and it's late at night, and it's seven foot by three foot. And, and it's like an individual uh, drag queen from San Francisco that's done a lot of charity and raised a lot of money and like does a lot of like club things or whatever. So I'm putting it on top of a graffiti tag and it's like a construction site. Cops come along and I'm not fully done. I turn around, I see that there's four squad cars there. So I just stand there and I keep spraying until I am done with the piece. I finish the piece, I get arrested, I go to jail, and it was book and release, but I finished it, um, and that was that was my thing. Like they, I, I wanted it to be a finished art piece when like they looked at me in the court system. Did that make the judge more lenient? You think? 
Um, I mean, it makes it more, uh, that piece, yeah, that same exact stencil of the Dry Queen, um, is in a show, I had a show at the Uruguayana Center for the Arts called DIY, um, it was like a maker's fair event type thing, um, where I was making stencils and I filled the whole entire place with stencils and they ended up like taking some of them for their, um, or buying some for their collection for their permanent art archive. So, I mean, it was, it was finishing the piece instead of having the piece half done where the judge couldn't fully see what was going on and be like, okay, that looks sloppy. I mean, it had fishnet nylon stenciled on onto the legs and like that, that that was like a really hard um stencil to cut like the fishnet nylons and make it look like not just some spider web or something i don't know so here i'm gonna ask you what do you wish you knew how to be an older person <laughs> keep going I wish that I could be calm and relaxed and not young and wild. And I wish I knew how to like do that. You life experience only is the only thing that can teach you that. Doesn't matter how smart you are and whatnot. Sometimes things that really shouldn't matter that much really matter to us. Like um, negativity. Sometimes like the haters outweigh the positive um, in a younger person's mind. Whereas like older people are just like, oh, whatever. Do you think if you were like calm and relaxed, maybe you'd think, oh, I wish I were young and wild again? Maybe, probably. Sometimes they get really nervous and hyper and very artistic, creative, and it's hard to chill and like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think I'd like you if you were, like, I think you'd be a totally less interesting person if you were calm. I wish I, I wish I could do both. I wish I could like turn on and off a switch and like. <laughs> That's what drugs are for, right? Well, I guess, I don't know. <laughs> what was your first real art experience? Uh, my first real art experience? I seriously remember the um, Challenger blowing up in my kindergarten class. I mean, I remember like the, com the the TV was like one of those box TVs. It was on top of one of those carts that they have to push around that may fall over. And we were all excited. Our teacher was really excited because there was a teacher going up into space. And so I remember it, it like exploding. I just remember the teacher running up turning it off and then hands out crayons and coloring like little things to color in so we were like coloring i was coloring in a bunny um and and as i've gone like back into the memory and i now like know what it was it was like the challenger blew up in my kindergarten class and then they handed us art art therapy uh but you know unfortunately we don't have art therapy in a lot of uh the world and like i really find that sometimes street art in itself you get an instant gratification of being able to show it right away without censorship without people trying to critique get to say that it's art or not which allows for like art therapy to really kind of uh i think be there too um so you think you're, you're still kind of taking trauma in your life and that's that's what drives you or that's why you end up doing so much of this uh yeah you don't have to say yes i mean i'm reaching a little bit yeah i mean i'm an artist i've, I've lived a real life i'm i mean i'm 33 and i've lived in six major cities and I do find that like by me um, doing my art and like getting it out there and like knowing that it's a good piece, that it's there and whatnot, really helps uh, me deal with things and, and get this like amazing adrenaline rush. Like I think that people that rob banks or steal cars, maybe even bicycles, I really don't know. I truly don't know all, all those things. But I believe um, they get the same adrenaline rush that I get by finishing an art piece that I didn't get permission for, but I know that in the future people are going to love and it's going to stay there and they're going to give me forgiveness, or at least I hope they will, because not all the time they do. So the last thing I want to do is walk over here and stand in the koi, and I think I'd be, I mean, how many of these have you done? 
I think I'm working on like 8,000 individual koi fish at this point in my career. I mean, the city of San Francisco has like over 5,000 of them. So why? I spent three months in China studying ancient contemporary art. While I was in China, I studied scrolls, learning about the Chinese lucky numbers, the feng shui color palettes, the urban myths and stories, as well as child fables um, related to the koi fish in the Chinese culture, and brought them back and actually placed them down in Chinese lucky numbers and all of the characteristics you find in Chinese scrolls, but updated into the street art version. Okay, you've done 8,000. Why has this remained something meaningful to you personally that you've been able to sustain it? It crosses cultural boundaries. I mean, people relate to it um, in a lot of different ways, all from just like being an image. So people have like really like latched onto it. I guess in some ways it's like a more, you know, you do some stuff that's really complicated, you know, or that it's more charged. And this is just kind of something that. Yeah, it's not divisive in any way. No, it's not divisive, and it's like kind of um, uh, it's a 3D fish. It's like bird's eye view. You're like you're looking at down below. My koi fish are just they're koi. I don't put my name next to them. They're not associated with any full-on philosophy or ideas or, or ways of thinking. They just are. They exist. This has been Art City, a weekly podcast about all things visual, all things culture, and all things Milwaukee. This is Mary Louise Schumacher. I'm the art and architecture critic at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Art City is produced by Adam Carr. You can follow me on Twitter at Art City. Follow Adam at A. Francis Carr. For more about the stories you've heard today, go to Art City at jsonline.com slash artcity. Thank you for listening. See you next week.